This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. On today's episode, I talk to author Cristina Garcia about her latest novel, Vanishing Maps. Vanishing Maps is a follow-up to Cristina Garcia's acclaimed first novel, Dreaming in Cuban. That first novel was published 30 years ago now, but the novel introduces us again to the Del Pino family 20 years after Celia met, well, an ambiguous end when she seems to be walking into the ocean. Her children and grandchildren are scattered and making their lives all over the world. The novel moves us from Cuba to Los Angeles to Berlin and Moscow. As the title of the novel suggests, the maps become unnecessary as these characters continue to battle for a sense of identity and of place. Ivanito is in Berlin. He has a gift for languages and also for recreating himself, somehow making himself invisible to give voice to some other part of himself or to someone else. He carries the idea of the terrors his mother felt of being erased. Pilar Puente is adrift in Los Angeles, struggling to find some success or create some kind of livelihood as a sculptor and the single mother of a young son. In Moscow, Ivanito's cousin Irina has become the wealthy owner of a lingerie company, but she remains alone and deeply lonely in the wake of her parents' deaths and her estrangement from her Cuban heritage. Celia, back in Havana, is about to reunite with her lost lover, Gustavo. What can being older and so much time apart have done to diminish their bond? The novel covers a momentous year in the lives of these family members and their constant search for home and the sometimes fragile bonds we have with those we love the most. I spoke to Cristina Garcia about her latest novel, Vanishing Maps. Well, so this novel obviously stands alone. You don't have to have read uh, Dreaming in Cuban to read this novel and understand it and appreciate it. But we do get to return to those characters that we first met in that first novel. 20 years have passed and a lot has happened. Can you just set the table for us and tell us a little bit about Vanishing Maps? Well, Vanishing Maps emerged out of my revisiting Dreaming in Cuban for an adaptation for theater. And so I hadn't really, it's not like I've been haunted by those characters or wondering particularly what had happened to them. To me, my first novel was a discreet event. Uh, when people asked me, well, does Celia survive or so-and-so? I, I was like, I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, I became interested because rereading the novel and then adapting it. I spent a lot of time with them. And then I did start wondering, I did start wondering what happened to Celia. Did she make it back to shore? Did she ever get in contact with that long lost lover? You know, did she, did she die whispering the name of El Comandante, you know, mm -hmm. on her, on her lips, all of that. And then of course there were kids and teenagers, all of whom were growing up and, and adults moving into middle and late middle age. And so I thought, why not? And um, so that's how it started. And I picked 20 years later because as you said, so much had happened. And also politically, seismically, the Soviet Union fell apart. And along with that came that support to Cuba and 
you know, this huge explosion, diasporic explosion of Cubans around the world. So um, that's why. And here we are. <laughs> I love this idea. I feel like we are now readers and and audiences of works where, you know, a series ends or a novel ends and it's a little ambiguous and maybe JR is still alive. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe <laughs> right. <men> come back. <laughs> maybe right. it's that ambiguous. Right. And, no one ever uh, dies in popular culture, right? That's right. And it is open-ended enough. We don't know what happens. There's a cliffhanger. Maybe even we can perceive it that way. Haunted by the characters also. I mean, as you say, things have happened pretty seismically, pretty politically that would then prompt us to wonder, gosh, I wonder what what Celia would have made of this uh, years on. Or mm -hmm. I wonder what could have possibly become of Pilar and so on. I mean, this novel mm -hmm. covers so much ground uh, geographically. There's a lot of spaces here. We are in we're in Havana. We're in Miami. We're in, in Moscow, Berlin. We uh, trot the globe with these characters, including the, the children and grandchildren of Celia. So this is this is something I think of as such a like a paradigm of your work, this idea of displacement, of travel, of migration. Can you talk a little bit about that in terms of vanishing maps? Sure. Thank you. Oh, that, that, and I appreciate your observations too. Yeah, I, I think um, too often maybe for, well, I don't know who thinks this, but I, I think too often characters get compartmentalized in terms of their social, national, cultural allegiances, when the reality is so much more complex. Uh, I think of my own daughter, who's uh, Cuban and Japanese and Jewish on her paternal grandfather's side. And and I, I sort of watch closely to see where, where her allegiances would, how they would evolve and where they would end up. I mean, she's only 30, so they're still obviously evolving. But but I found that um, that old notions of uh, nationality, of belonging, even of identity are growing more and more supple. And we're not identified in the same way we were used to identifying and being identified by others, you know, when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s. So I wanted to kind of grapple with that and grapple with this notion of, you know, in this big bang explosion of a world where people are hurtling to all parts of the globe and bringing parts of their past with them, but also confronting all of these new environments and other cultures. What, what does that mean? What are the, what are the traditional notions of identity mean in that, in this kind of world? And so uh, I think that's part of why, um, you know, part of my interest in this and also uh, you know, and you shake this world sideways and out pops another cousin whom nobody knew about, you know, who grew up in <laughs> Moscow. And, you know, I surprised myself with what was going on. I surprised myself with each of the characters. I, I couldn't have predicted any of their trajectories when I was going in. Is that right? Oh, I, I want to ask you about that. But, I, I, you know, I'm so curious about what you're saying to me. I'm thinking about like, 
you know, my friends who take DNA tests and then suddenly they're like, I knew I was, you know, <laughs> I knew I sort of gravitated to, you know, this or that nationality or this or that. Right. Portuguese um, food or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's kind of beautiful. I feel like we're all always sort of trying to find our place, even, even if we're quite grounded in a, in a place that we're sort of always thinking about our identity and where else we might fit place becomes a very kind of fluid thing. I feel like in your novel, it's, there's this idea of being very grounded in a place, even while uh, there's a, a reaching out for other places for a variety of reasons. Ivanito is someone who I'm madly in love with. Uh, he's oh. son of Felicia, mm-hmm. met a terrible end, um, but his, the Epilat is able to get him out of Cuba. And then 20 years on, here we are in Vanishing Maps, and he's very much on his own. He's a successful translator and a performer. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about this idea of translation, of like a linguistic translation of a literary translation at this cultural translation you write in the novel Ivanito translated these languages but also their cultures their histories their erotics their losses shape-shifting from one lexicon to the next I wonder if you can talk about Ivanito a little bit again he was a relatively minor character in Dreaming Cuban except toward the end when he became pivotal because everyone wanted him to do a certain thing you know Celia wanted him to stay in Cuba and he became a pawn essentially he he became emblematic of the strife between the Cubans who left and Cubans who remained so I was very curious about him and he had studied Russian as a as a boy not that unusual in 60s Cuba and so yes that he ends up in Berlin seems perfectly fitting for me because Berlin has always, I mean, except during the Third Reich, which is a big except, but think about Berlin, Weimar Berlin in the 20s, or even, you know, Berlin today or since the fall of the wall, it has been a magnet for people who haven't fit anywhere else. People who are multiply hyphenated, who want to, you know, who are artistically experimental, who just don't want to live in the prescribed ways that they were told that they should be living. Uh, in Berlin, anything is possible. And I think he he talks about Berlin in the 90s at one point and, and you know, people living in abandoned buildings and jerry-rigging this and that. And I just thought, I don't know, it's funny to say he's, he's a kind of alter ego for me because I'm not like him. And I, you know, Pilar is probably closer to me in many ways, but I loved his freedom and his and I loved his willingness just to be out there you know whether he was on stage performing as these Cuban divas or teaching his students at the university or you know taking on his little nephew whom he really coddles and kind of teaches the ways teaches him the ways of Berlin I, I think for me, he's the center of the novel. He's sort of the cenosure of this galaxy of cousins and families and allegiances that that and, and he has this sort of centrifugal pull on everyone. 
because mm-hmm. he represents the freedom, I think, to some degree, a kind of a kind of freedom. And then paradoxically, of course, he's being haunted by his mother who, who wants to <laughs> pull him over to the other side. Yeah. So so but and 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 he, you know, under the circumstances, he's pretty nice to her, you know. <laughs> I don't know if you have a choice when it comes to a ghost, but I mean, <laughs> but but yeah, I don't know. For me, he he was um, you know, such an interesting mix of personal opportunities, you know? Yeah, he's so, uh, and granted, he not only is he being haunted, but he he's being haunted by other things. I mean, he has not had an easy life, an easy childhood. Mm-hmm. He understands that this is his life, that, that this is where he is now. Yes, he experienced those things. I feel like he's just so smart. He's good at everything. <laughs> he seems to be really good at everything. Um, I love the way he even has this part in uh, Bilar's punk girl group um, back right, in New York City. Right, right. <laughs> I love it. And and he, and he I feel like that was even part of the root system for him of his understanding of art and culture even. I mean, I feel like his politics are interesting if, you know, if sometimes a little bit nebulous because he's so given over instead to so many other real interests mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. there's a the subject of translation but also of when talking about moving through the world or about Im, uh, being an immigrant but the idea of translation as it pertains to so many other things in this book literature also music and music is something in your novel, I wish there were like a Spotify playlist, but super wide ranging. Oh, I thought about that at one point to do a playlist. Really? I yeah. mean, it's so diverse. We have uh, Chopin, we have opera, uh, Monteverdi, we have La Lupe, we have Iggy Pop, uh, U2, David Bowie. I mean, it's like this. The Ramones. <laughs> the Ramones. Yes, the Ramones got highlighted. It's, it's right. just wonderful and diverse. And uh, then film, we have like, well, the mention of Almodovar for sure. I, I just want to know, though, about music and the part it plays for you. I mean, clearly you have probably, I'm assuming, a very deep and abiding love for music and and art. But I feel like, wow, music really comes through in this novel in such beautiful ways. Oh, well, thank you. I um, Yes, I paid very close attention to the music and, um, and I wanted each character in a sense to have their own soundtrack and to, and for it not necessarily to be predictable you know that it was a that it was a mix of things you know people have said it's an old old cliche about music being another language but it is an, another language and and so i would add that to everybody yes he's he's fluent in german russian spanish and english but also music and my daughter, she's not a professional clarinetist, but, you know, grew up with a lot of music. And she, in the language her musician friends speak, is, a, is another language. It's a, it sort of amplifies their existences in, in meaningful ways, I think. And, and so, yeah, I think you got it with the whole translation thing. It's not just translating one a sentence in Russian to a sentence in Spanish. It's it's about all of the associations and and uh, that come along with it. Just like all of us reading a novel or bringing all of our chains of associations with us as we bear down and surrender over to, to reading. 
you know, and I think to be a good translator, you have to open yourself, open yourself up to other rhythms and musical possibilities. A good translator is like a wonderful musician. And it makes so much sense with him. And it's all through the novel. I want to talk a bit about magic realism. So your novel, because it picks up uh, 20 years later, and it's been 30 years now since uh, Dreaming in Cuban came out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I feel like as a reader in 2023, magic realism in literature, in film, and I will say also on, you know, the many productions we have access to now through streaming services, right? Um, it's, I I don't know. I don't know if I want to say that magic realism has become something different. I really don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure. I know that it, in literature, when it works well, whatever that means to me, it it's as indispensable as any other part of the novel. The magic realism how do I say this? As I'm reading the novel, I almost take it in stride that Ivanito has this halo. And it's like, a, you know, it's it's just like another thing he's wearing. It's like a hat. It, it did it, For me, at a certain point, it would just beca- became part of the who, who he is. And mm-hmm. I didn't it wasn't sort of sticking out with this neon sign that says, hey, magic realism over here, which I can't stand when, when that happens sometimes. I I agree. uh, agree. The idea of, of magic realism, it's, it's, I don't know how to say it. It's so, I don't know, organic. It's so in the weave and the fabric. It's so, I don't know. It's, it's just so real. I, I, I so appreciate that. No, I, I mean, like you, I, I, I really am averse to, you know, very self-conscious magical realism opportunities, you know, like, oh, okay, we've gone four pages and let's have this owl talk to you or whatever, not, not happening. But I do, I do think of the, the magic that happens as extensions of character, you know, just the way other things are extensions of character, like the way you know, in the end, the way um, I won't be specific about who goes to bed with whom, but yeah. you know that, that they become that that that's an extension of character. So, kind of everything you do, how you experience life, whether magic, whether you allow magic consciously or unconsciously into your life, uh, whether you have a halo that only you and your little nephew can see or not, you know, but, but, you know, the magic of performing as someone else entirely taking on another personality and, and creating that illusion for an audience in Berlin of 1950s Cuban divas. I mean, that's kind Mm -hmm. of magic realism too. So I, I kind of, I think it's all in the level of specificity, Uh, like everything else. It's, it's all in the details and, and to get those details right. And, to have them feel organic, to use your word, you don't want it sticking out like a like a toadstool from your sentence, you know? It is part and parcel of the world, you know, the magic and the dreaming and the releasing and the lovemaking. It is all part of part of the same world. Yes, there's and there's truth in it. I try to tell my students who react a little bit against anything that's a little 
or or they embrace it. But the ones who sort of uh, can't get into a story, if there's anything too surreal or if there's mm-hmm. magic realism, I say to them, lean into that because what you will find is reality. And they look at me like, what? But I say to them, trust me, the most real elements of a character or of a place or of a situation, you will arrive at some answers about the realness or the reality uh, or a resonance there. Look, go in there. And there's, you know, and they're like, okay. And and I, I feel very strongly about that. And I just feel like, right, it's not just this super artificial thing that's imposed like the you know the writers the writers who have said to me i love to pepper in a little spanish and i say no it shouldn't be peppered in after the fact <laughs> it's it's, it's mm-hmm. something that should come code switching is something that comes very naturally and, and organically yes yes yeah i couldn't i couldn't agree more i i don't think it's um you know it's frippery i don't think it's uh something that's pasted on or an afterthought if it's not integral to the world then probably doesn't belong. Pilar says this. Pilar says, obsessive, ruinous love ran in my family. Many of these characters have this uh, very particular quality that is so human and so resonant. And that is that they are obsessive. They are single-minded about love or politics or each other in their family. I found that your novel with all of these moving parts manages these little windows into these characters somehow. So when you end one chapter and you see the title of the next one and the name of the next character, you realize that you missed them and you want to see what's like, you're sort of like, oh, Pilar, Pilar again, (laughs) or Ivanito's here. And that appeal, I think, is largely due to this idea, these idiosyncrasies of their obsessiveness and their single-mindedness about one thing or another. So I feel like, I don't know what it says about me, but I feel like when I'm reading, it's it's sort of like, these are people whose lives are so broken open for us, these ruinous terrible loves or relationships, deaths and wars and revolution and all of these things. And I feel like it, the, it's, as you said before, where it's more most specific is where there's such a universality. There's such a resonance. So I just, I love how obsessive almost everybody is about something or other in these moments that you capture in the novel. That is just such so lovely to hear. Thank you. So generous. All I can say is that I I I think there is a maybe a certain poignancy to survival, you know, and each in their own way, you know, whether it's our Muscovite Irina, you know, selling her lingerie or Lourdes battling for the Elian, I think he's called something else in the book, Elian Gonzalez case, or, you know, everybody, everybody in one way or another, or even Pilar's, how she nurses her failures, but keeps still looking for, well, what, what else could I do? Uh, 
I don't know. I, I, I just, I do think that, that they, they do keep trying and, and keep reinventing themselves as much as they can, given who they are and kind of all, all that they have inherited and all that they are, that they've done battle with in their lives. But I don't know. I mean, I, even the Lord, this character, who's the furthest <laughs> possible, as you can imagine. To me, there's also poignancy in her, in her, in her battling, in her self righteousness, in in the blind spots we have about ourselves and others, about about the forgiveness we offer, and and the and the hurts that we continue nursing. I mean, it's 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 they're all very to me very human, and um, I don't know. I I I personally love to read and and hopefully write characters that will keep you as engaged as a, as a good friend does over time, you know? Yeah. And you do, you really, they, they do. I mean, at first it's this golpe, right? They're so, oh my gosh, Lourdes, my goodness. <laughs> it was Eliseo <laughs> Gonzalez, right? Anyway, but, um, but they, it's not that they soften. It's you just sort of get to know them and, and it's all good. It's all okay. You know, I, I interviewed Richard Rousseau recently. His new novel is Somebody's Fool. And in that novel, there are twins. They're, oh. they're boy, girl, they're fraternal boy, a, a brother and sister twin. And he said something to me when I revealed to him that I am I am a twin to a boy. Oh, yes, you do? oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> and I said that to him and he said, oh, my gosh, I'm terrified. I hope I got it right. And he said, you know, when you write about twins, um, there's a lot that the author needs to get right. It's like any, it's like writing about anything else. Yes, we use our imagination and we, we try to write the characters uh, as honestly as we can. And so I was thinking about, I just, I just talked to him recently. So I was thinking about this when I was reading your novel too. Is this idea of twins? Is, there's two sets of them as well. There's yeah. two sets of them. Um, <laughs> I didn't want to spoil that part, but there's two sets of them. Sorry. <laughs> Um, but, um, I just, I find that so interesting. I, and I, I think back to the first time I discovered this and I was, a, I was very self-conscious about it when I had a professor in a Shakespeare class in, in undergrad say to me something like, you know, twins are in Shakespeare are just inherently comical. Like they're just going to be comical. <laughs> I never got over that uh, idea about twins. That's and, kind of harsh know. medicine there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there's in your novel, there's really something else going on with twins that I find I just found so so interesting. And I, again, I don't I I feel like every, every every page had something I wanted to ask you about, and I thought you know I'm going to spoil everything for people who listen to this and haven't read the book. I want to ask you lastly about invisibility. Mm. There's a lot about invisibility here. It's either a superpower or a secret power. It's described both ways in your book. So it's it's a positive thing sometimes. And then it's it can be something negative if it's perceived as something like erasure. So when Ivanito has his mother's uh, diary, he says that she had a quote, a terror of erasure. Mm. And he carries that diary of hers 
uh, with him to all of these different places. And he thinks he can fill perhaps the pages of that book with his own story. Mm -hmm. And I feel like somehow for any of a number of, of concerns that displaced people face or that women face in some of these relationships where they must come into their own and protect their children or try to survive or fend for their families and, and so on, that almost seem querer, right? That there's um there's either this need to be invisible, but always the terror of erasure, sort of mm. uh, paradoxically, that I I just found that idea to be so profound. And and it's an idea, I'm not giving away too much. It's an idea that we encounter at the very beginning of this novel and that we, and you sort of carry it with you all the way to the last page without spoiling too much. But I, I wanted to ask you about this idea of erasure and invisibility and what that means to you with, with vanishing maps. Yeah. Well, I, I think you're officially now, um, the best reader I could have hoped for, for this novel. <laughs> oh my God. Yay. Bucket list. <laughs> I just want to put that out there with a big thank you. Uh, uh, yes, that was one of the themes. And in fact, the title Vanishing Maps alludes to that as well, which is whether you become invisible, will invisibility, the, or the world that you knew is no longer visible except inside you somehow and coming out, you know, in, in memory or nostalgia or longing or um, whether you, you sacrifice your visibility for someone else, whether it's your children or, I mean, I, I think that whole notion, especially as immigrants and especially as quote unquote, like others in, around the world, you know, what is, what does it mean to be, you know, with one foot in and one foot out? What is it, what are these, what do these multiply hyphenated identities mean? Can you choose your visibility or is it chosen for you? I mean, all of these questions with all of these characters in different contexts, you know, and what if the world around you, as I just mentioned a little earlier, what if the world around you, the maps you had come to rely on are, are no longer available? What do you rely on then? And do those distortions change the visibility? I mean, I'm going on and on and on, but but essentially, as we were talking about the 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 flexibility and the and the but there's a there's a, a kind of fungibility to invisibilities and part of it is choice and part of it is imposed and so how do you negotiate that how do you negotiate yourself how do you how does one negotiate their way to selfhood given all of this and I think each of the characters in their own way are are struggling with that Pilar feels invisible as an artist you know and she's trying to find her way. Um, Ivanito feels most visible as someone else when he's dressed up in drag and performing. Even the little boy, um, Azul, you know, his ghost of a great aunt takes him to, to the, you know, does this really happen? Do they really go to the North Pole? There, there's always this questioning of, is what you're seeing true? And, are, and, and is how you're seeing me in any way 
resembling how I see myself. I mean, it's it's just a it's a kind of house of mirrors in a way. Christina Garcia, thank you so much. What an honor. What a thrill to get to talk to you about Vanishing Mass. It's a pleasure for me. Thank you so much for your interest and your wonderful, wonderful questions. Christina Garcia is the author of Vanishing Maps. It's published by Knopf. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides.